Well, good morning. Um, I don't know what it is with me. It seems like the last three or four times I've spoken, I've sat there in my chair and waited till the very last minute and then realized, I don't have a microphone. I got to go to a microphone. And so I ended up doing it last minute, and I hope it's working. Is it, we're, we're okay. Okay, great. Um, well, thank you for being here. Uh, we are going to continue our study of the book of uh, Revelation, uh, specifically the letters to the seven churches there that's found in uh, the first couple of chapters. And uh, today we're going to look at Thyatira. Uh, we've previously looked at Ephesus, uh, which was, if you'll remember, Ephesus was the church that lost its first love. And then we, we talked about Smyrna, and Smyrna was a church that was a persecuted church, but they were faithful. And so the instructions to them were more about holding what they got and be, be comforted in the fact that, that, that their cause is going to prevail. And then uh, Yancey spoke to us last week about the church at Pergamum, and the church at Pergamum was one that compromised, and, and so we talked about that. Today it's going to get a little bit worse. Uh, this is more of uh, Thyatira was a corrupt church. Uh, not that they didn't have some good things going on, but that they had taken those excesses that existed in Pergamum and they'd taken an additional step. And, and we'll see that, I think, in our, our study of the morning. So let me give you just a little bit of back, a background about the city. So of the seven cities that are mentioned here, Thyatira was the smallest of the cities. Now we really don't know about the size of the actual congregation, but we know that the city was, was not really on a major trade route. Uh, however, they were well known for their craftsmanship. There were a lot of, it, it would be what we would call today a blue collar town. There was a lot of craftsmen and so the, and these craftsmen uh, had these uh, guilds, and these guilds were these uh, associations that was really, really important for you to belong to if you were going to be a successful, uh, whatever it was, you, whatever trade you were in. If you were a coppersmith, you needed to be in, 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 that, uh, in that guild. But the problem with them is that they were all connected to idolatry. So that made it impossible for those Christians uh, to really to manage because most of them were those kind of workers and yet they couldn't participate in those kind of associations. And I think as we get into our study, you'll see that that's probably what we have going on here is begin, they were forbidden to do that, but they begin to creep into those type of, of excesses. Uh, there was a God overall... There was, a, there was a god that, that the city worshipped, and his name was Thyremnos. And Thyremnos was, was thought to be the son of Zeus. So what's really odd is he wasn't a primary god in their, in, their, in their world, in the Roman world at the time. You would expect Jupiter or Mercury or Diana, one of those, to be their principal god that they worshipped, but they didn't. This Tyremnos, which was son of Zeus, seemed to be the focus of, of much of their uh, worship. Now, again, I'm not talking about the church specifically, but I'm talking about the community, the town. There was also a, a, a prophetess there, and her name was Sam, Sambathi. 
And Sambathi was, they were, uh, she was a prophet at this shrine, and at this shrine they did all kinds of witch, witchcraft and things like that. Uh, she is the person that um, many people believe, and it seems to be the case, that's referred to as the Jezebel that we're going to talk about this morning. Um, and, and so uh, an important, so that's just the culture that they were in and, and what they deal, did, uh, dealt with. You might remember in Acts chapter 16, there's a reference to a lady by the name of Lydia. And Lydia, a Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple. And that, uh, that was something that, uh, again, that was a trade, that, that was the dying of clothes. And purple was, a, was difficult to come by. It was hard to get. And so uh, this Lydia uh, actually hosted Paul and, and some other uh, disciples there in uh, Philippi. Uh, so, uh, and she was actually converted. She was, a, she was a worshiper of God, but she didn't know about Jesus. And so uh, through the Apostle Paul, she came into contact with Jesus. Uh, so we think that probably because of that contact, the word eventually got spread through the Apostle Paul into Asia Minor, which, um, which was location. You can see up there the location of that church, in Thyra, or the location of the city of Thyatira. And that picture over there is the, the ruins of a temple, probably a pagan temple, uh, there in the city. So... Um, you ever watch a movie and there's some foreshadowing, something happens and it, it reflects some, you don't know it at the time, but then when you look back you go, oh, okay, that's kind of what they were saying. Well, the, uh, the description here of Jesus is, I think it's, it's foreshadowing the type of instruction they're about to get. Because he says, and to the angel in Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God. Now, let me pause right there. Uh, the Son of God is only referenced once. That's a, that's a reference that's only used in, in reference to one of these churches, and that's Thyatira. Probable reason? Because they were, they were in that city persuaded to worship this Thyremnos, which was the son of Zeus. And so... Here John writes to him and says, this comes from the Son of the living God, not some fake God that, that's out there that people are worshiping, but the actual Son of the living God, who has eyes like the flame of fire, which is a reference to, to Jesus' ability to clearly see and determine error. So he's able to look at the congregation and see what their problems are, and to prescribe for them uh, fixes or remedies that will put them back in, in good stead. And so you see his, his eyes are as flames of fire. And then finally we see his feet being like brass. Uh, brass is the thing that was common to that area. They would have known about it. But probably more importantly, this is a reference to uh, Jesus' ability to make them right again. Uh, the, the, the substance of brass is something that's used in the Old Testament uh, as a redeeming value. And I want to show you uh, just from the, the, you may remember this story in, uh, in Numbers chapter 21, 
as Moses led the people out of uh, Egyptian captivity and they got across and they were, dealing, they were dealing with some hardships or they thought they were hardships and they began to complain, they began to murmur against God and against Moses. You remember that? Well, so God was very angry with the fact that they were, that they were complaining and he sent fiery serpents in there that, that bit and killed a lot of the people. And I guess at that point they figured that maybe they didn't have it so bad after all. And so they repented. And, and after they repented, then God told Moses, I want you to make you a serpent of brass. And you put it on a pole, and anyone that looks on that serpent will be spared. And so Moses uh, did as God commanded, and it saved some of the people, but we know that others died. Um, so brass was that type of thing. And so he goes on in the, the letter and he says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. You know, boy, if only the letter could have ended right here. Wouldn't that have been great? Because this sounds like the kind of congregation that you'd want to be part of. They've got works. They've got love. They've got patience. They've got and, and not only do they have works, but their works are growing. So this is a congregation that seems to be moving forward in this type of thing. Um, boy, it sounds great. But then it turns. And it says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allowed that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and, things, uh, and eat things sacrificed to idols. Uh, if you'll remember from the Old Testament, there was a Jezebel that was married to a king, and that king's name was Ahab. Ahab was a wicked, wicked king. It says in one place that the evil that he did was worse than all the kings that came before him. He was not a king of Judah, but he was a king of... Remember when the tribes split and ten went to the north, and then the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, stayed, stayed there in, in Judea, in, Jer in the area of Jerusalem. Well, the ten tribes that went to the north, they had a king, and that king at some point became Ahab. And Ahab was greatly persuaded by his wife. And his wife's name was Jezebel. And again, you don't see a lot of Jezebels today, uh, probably because of this reference and people. It, the connotation that goes with that is not very flattering. Uh, this, this picture was actually, uh, it just says, Jezebel of Fire Tire. I found it on the internet. It's, got, it's on the internet, so it's got to be true. Uh, so if that's someone related to you, I apologize. Uh, but anyway, this was Jezebel, uh, supposedly. And probably, again, that Sambathi that is the prophetess, that is probably the reference. We don't know that for a fact, because it doesn't say and I think it may be not critical to our understanding of the scripture, but it gives us some context of the kind of things that they were dealing with. Of Jezebel, the writer says, but there was no one like Ahab. You know, a lot of times when you say there's no one like them, that's a compliment. Well, there's no one like them. Well, 
Not so much here. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. He behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So you can see again that this is, uh, she was not well thought of. She, she did a lot of bad. Uh, the interesting thing, there, there are several things about this that we ought to think about. One is, we don't really know, did they allow her to teach in the church? That, that's a question. So if it was this prophetess that Sambathi, were they, and she was, she was, a, she was a, a pagan prophet that worked at a shrine, were they really bringing her into the church to teach? Maybe. Um, another possibility is, is that some of, some of the people that went there and heard what she said, Christians would come back and they would preach and they would share that message. And so indirectly, uh, she would be able to, to influence the congregation. A third alternative is that maybe none of that's true and they just, uh, a lot of their members went to this shrine and they were very... Uh, enticed by the words that she, she used and impressed with her. And so she was able to turn these people away from God into some sexual immorality and, and into some idol worship that, um, um, that was obviously very, very displeasing to the Lord. So we don't really know which of those is true, um, but we know that what I, what I think is interesting is you allowed it. And so, you know, I think about Yancey and I and anybody that's in leadership in any organization is really what you tolerate, you're promoting. And so one of the things that the church should do is stand for things that are right because, you know, it says in the other, let me go back a slide, oh, that one. Go back to this slide. It says, I know your works and your love you know, love that's, that's misplaced can lead to that kind of thing, a, a tolerance. So, well, I just have so much love for them that I just will accept it, even though I know it's not right, but love's more important, so I'm just going to let them go. That's not love. Love is being honest and, and correcting somebody. You know, if you see me going off on a wrong path, if you love me, you're going you're gonna to correct me, just like you do your children. If you see your children going off and doing something that's going to lead to harm, are you, are you going to ever say, well, I, I love them so much, I just want them to be able to do that? No. You're going to correct them before they get so far down a path that they can't correct. So maybe that's the case here. We don't really know. Um, but what we do know is we know that Jezebel of Thyatira, she was a prophetess and she was successful at seducing God's people to committing the sexual immorality and to eating meats that were all idols. So we know that God has made the institution of marriage one that allows us to deal with the natural desires that He's put, on, put in men and women. There's, there's a natural desire for a male and a female to be with the other gender and, and, and God has not said that's wrong. But he's given us a venue in which to express that. And that's with a single partner. And that's how you handle that. Now, outside of that realm, God...
God is displeased. That's what that passage says. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Um, we remember that uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he uh, condemns that church uh, for their tolerating of this fornicator. It's, there was a, a guy there that was actually uh, having a relationship with his father's wife, and they thought it was maybe cute or funny or something. And, and Paul condemns that behavior uh, clearly. He goes on here in the next chapter, and he says this. He says, Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, nor homosexuals, or sodomites. A sodomite is, one, is male homosexuality. So really, you get homosexuality in there twice. Uh, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, there are a lot of people today that would want to tell you that, that some of these things are okay, that that's just a lifestyle choice, and, and people should be, uh, should be allowed to choose that. Well, it might be okay with me, and it might be okay with you, but it's not okay with God. And so people that say that, just show them that passage in 1 Corinthians 6. It says that fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and sodomites and so forth and so on will not inherit the kingdom of God. End of story. Now, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that would say, well, that's, that's antiquated, that's, that's old thinking, that's not the way it is today. Um, I've got a friend that I used to work with, and uh, she, one time we were traveling together to a workshop or something, and on the way back, she was commenting about the, the, uh, the people that were in her Bible study the night before. And at this Bible study, they were condemning homosexuality. Well, uh, I had to explain to her that while, you know, we're in a free country in America, you can choose what you want to do, but the reality is, is I can't take God's word and say that God thinks it's okay. And it doesn't really matter what Matt thinks. What matters is what God thinks, and God says these things are wrong. But he also says fornication and adultery are wrong. So we're not saying that, we're not going to wink at, at that and say that fornication and adultery are okay and homosexuality is wrong. We're not saying that. We're saying they're all wrong and they go in this, this pile of, of lifestyle choices. That's another thing I want to differentiate this morning is there are people that have made mistakes, okay? They've made mistakes. They've done things that are wrong and they repented of it. That's different from choosing it as a lifestyle. And when you choose it as a lifestyle, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, at least according to what the Apostle Paul says. And I have no reason to doubt what he says is, is very true. So, um, eating meats offered to idols. Well, that's a curious one to me. Uh, Michael and I were talking about this uh, the other day. And... and uh, you, if you look in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul tells us that an idol is really nothing and that the meat offered to idol is really just meat. And so on the surface, it would seem to be okay. But Paul goes on to say, but for a weaker brother, don't do that because you may cause them to stumble. They may see something and interpret that as your worship of idols and then you 
it leads them down a path that they shouldn't go. Even though to you it may not bother you because it's just, well, it's just me. But you see what was probably happening here in Thyatira is they were participating in these, in these pagan feasts. And again, you can imagine the, the, the social pressure that they would have to participate in these guilds because that's where you were going to get your business. The guilds were not friendly to Christians. If you were going to be in one of those guilds, you, weren't going to, you, you were going to lose business because of that. In fact, you might have a hard time finding any business. It was going to be tough. Uh, many of you are part of professions and, and have org, professional organizations that you're part of. And most of us would acknowledge that those, those organizations are important but maybe not critical to our success in America. But for these guys, very, very difficult to be successful uh, without that. And so you can imagine how appealing it would be for this, this Jezebel to come in and say, we've got this, uh, you should participate in these guilds, and if you do, then God's not going to condemn you for it. In fact, we've got a God you can worship here. Um, you know, another thing that Paul has said is that um, we're to come out from among them and be separate, that we should not touch the unclean things. That's what he says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Is that, so God's people should be separate from those things that are related to idols. And Christian, uh, uh, Christianity calls for a, a different level of service. Um, so I want to make a, a connection for us this morning is Let's look at the, the connection between idolatry and fornication. And I had never really noticed this or seen this before. Uh, so why is fornication connected to idolatry? Well, the first reason is pretty straightforward in that God often uses fornication as a metaphor for spiritual infidelity. He referred to Israel as being playing the harlot a lot of times. He wasn't talking about sexual immorality in this case. He was talking about spiritual immorality, that they weren't being faithful. They weren't being a faithful wife uh, to him. You can see that in this passage here in Hosea chapter 2. It says, I will punish her for the days of Baals to which she burned incense. She's talking, he's talking about Israel. And he says, she decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went out after lovers but she forgot me. This is God talking. So he's not talking about a sexual relationship. He's talking about a people who were chasing after other gods. You know, uh, strictly speaking, idolatry, strictly speaking, idolatry is image worship, strictly speaking. However, do you think we have a problem with idolatry today? You know, um, there's a couple years ago, we were in a Bible study, and I made the comment uh, at the Bible study. I said, well, you know, in, in the tongue-in-cheek, so not really meaning it. I said, you know, in the modern world, uh, we're, we're far too sophisticated to be sucked into idolatry. And Yancey cut his eyes over there and looked at me and just kind of grinned because he knew that that's not, that's not true. That we're just as susceptible to idolatry 
as these guys were back then. Our idols look different. We're not, we're not going to do image worship, but we're going to do it in a different way. Um, Colossians 3 and 5 tells us this. It says that covetousness, covetousness is idolatry. Well, how do you make that connection? Well, what happens is the covetous man has made, has made gold or money his God. That has supplanted God from the throne of his heart, and that now is the most important thing, is money. But you know, brethren, it's not just money. It could be anything. It could be wealth. It could be prestige. It could be fame. It could be, uh, it could be your job. It could be uh, sports. It, it could be anything that you think of that would kick Jesus Christ off of the throne of your heart and replace Him. That's what idolatry is, is anything that you put in front of God. And that's a huge challenge, isn't it? Because the reality is, is we're around all that other stuff and God is a, an idea, an abstract idea that we worship. It's, he's real. He's not, he's not fake. He's real. But yet we don't, we don't get to see Him uh, in person. We only see Him through His Word and through His creation. Um, I want to get to this though. Sexual immorality is merely an expression of idolatry. Again, I'm talking about it as a lifestyle. I'm not talking about it as someone slipped up and made a mistake. I'm not talking about that. Uh, just like anything is, you know, you might, you might have a few moments that you really care about your wealth, that you're concerned about your bank account. That's not the same thing as worshiping money. But when you're obsessed with that at the expense of ever thinking about God, you have to start to think, well, who's, who is really my God? So I want to look in Romans chapter 1, because I think this is interesting. He says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Now, what's it talking about here? It's talking about God. And it's saying that, that based on the things that He's created, we can understand that there's a Creator. That as you look at the seasons change from summer to to fall, to winter, to spring, that whole cycle. We ought to look at that and see there's a God in charge of that. The fact that day changes to night. The fact that, that, that we have a system that is in, in um, balance and has been in balance for the thousands of years that the Lord has put us here upon this earth uh, indicates that there was a creator. So that's what he's saying. It says being understood by the things which are made. So we look at the things that are made and we understand that oh, there was a creator. It didn't just happen out of some big bang. Even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him. The evidence was there, right there. And yet they didn't glorify Him. Here's what they did. So I want you to look at that, uh, look at that picture. So there's the Grand, Grand Canyon, and I don't know how many of you have been there. I've never been there, but I can imagine that that is an impressive, impressive thing to see. I would submit that there are a lot of people right there on that, that are looking at that that see that and see the beauty of that canyon. 
and never think that there was a creator. Never crosses their mind. There's going to be other people that are there are going to see that and they're going to see that that's the glory of God right there showing out and that by the manifestation of what he created, there is a creator. That's, that should be obvious. And that's, that's the point here that Paul makes in Romans uh, chapter 1 and, and verse number 20. And so we go on, he says, people professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and, foot and four-footed animals and creeping things. And so we begin to make our, our gods like the things that were created. And we, we divorced ourselves from our Creator and we just focused on what we had. You know, really, that's a symptom of man's condition since the beginning, if you think about it. He has, since, since the serpent tempted Eve in the garden, what did he do? He said, eat of the, there's the fruit of the, in the midst, of the midst of the garden that we're not supposed to eat of. That's what Eve said. And the serpent said, uh, listen, you, you know, God said you'll die. What it really means is you'll be like him. Oh, okay. Well, I can be my own God. That's a pretty good deal. Man's been trying to do that ever since. He goes on to say, he says, Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness into the lust of their hearts to dishonor their, their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the thing that was created, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, we're talking about lifestyle here. That if the idea here is that if you choose the lust of the world as your God, you know what he will do? You know what the, the God, the real God will do? He will turn you over to that lust. And that's your God, and that's who you'll serve. Here's a warning. That lust can never be satisfied. Never. It can't be satisfied. It's like that. It's like that piece of chocolate I get after, after my meal. I eat it knowing I'm going to want another one. And then when I finish that one, I'm going to want another one. It's like that. It's like, it's like that, that sugar that just is so alluring and tempta- uh, tempting that we want more and more and more and more. It can't be satisfied. That's the, that's the lust of the flesh. And it is a... It is a it is a rude and cruel taskmaster. But God will turn you over and let you, if that's who you want to serve, He'll let you do that. You know, I've got, you, I've got a picture up here of what's supposed to represent the prodigal son. Uh, the idea that we'll just go all the way down into the, to the lowest. We, it's got to get super low for us to realize that this ain't working. And then, then we change and then we finally, hopefully, come back. So um, I found this, and I thought it was uh, appropriate to what we're talking about this morning, that um, it's really part of man's attempt to be his own master, 
and he's pretty bad at it. So I want you to notice that uh, th this is from like 2009 compared with 2019, so in that decade. So the number of people, approximately 11 or 12 percent people identify themselves less, 10 percent or, or 11 to 12 percent less identify themselves as Christians as they did a decade earlier. And if you look at it generationally, you can see that the older uh, generation, the slip wasn't as much. The baby boomers a little bit, Generation X more, and then millennials more. So again, more and more, we're getting away from, and this is not a bash on younger people at all. Uh, I think we've, we've set the tone as baby boomers. That we've, we've, we've started to slide more or less. And, and it's, it's continued. But the idea, and you notice that these people, look at the other side, the, the unaffiliated. They're not just going from Christianity to something else. They're going from Christianity to nothing. Which means they're their own God. That's what they're saying. Is that I, don't, now I really don't need religion. I don't need God. I can, I, I can be my own God. That's really what that, that's what that says. We were talking at Bible study the other night about uh, a guy that's a gentleman that said that um, he made the statement that although it was well-intentioned, this is Pierce Morgan who is a journalist, works for CNN, and he made the statement that uh, the Bible was well-intentioned, but it's inherently flawed. The Bible is inherently, that, that is well-intentioned, but inherently flawed. That it needs to be updated. You know, get, get it with the times. You know, that's kind of like uh, several years ago, Danny uh, was showing me some things about improving my guitar playing, and he suggested that I, I use a metronome. Now, a metronome is a deal that will give you time. I hate playing with a metronome. Those things are broke. They can't keep up with my playing. <laughs> What's wrong with that logic? The metronome is right on. It's my playing that's got to adjust to that. And so that's the case here with, with God's Word, is we want to keep going. We want to think that we're the standard, and then let's adjust God's Word to meet that standard, rather than setting God's Word up at the standard and using that. Uh, so... Why are people more miserable today than they were 20 years ago, 40 years ago? Why is there more suicides? Why, why, why are families more broken up? Why, why is there so much stress and anxiety in the world today that is more affluent than it's ever been? It's because it drives us to try to be our own God. And we can get tricked into that just like these brethren in Thyatira got tricked into it uh, in their day. So he says, and he says, and I gave her up to re uh, repent of her sexual immorality, and she didn't. Again, so we're talking about a lifestyle. It's not a one-off. This is what they're chosen to do. God gave them a chance to repent. They refused to impent, uh, repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. That's an appropriate place for a, an immoral person. Uh, and who's... who? And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. He gives us a way to repent, 
But if we don't, he says, I will kill her children with death. You know, it's interesting. If you look at the story of Jezebel, Jezebel and Ahab, they had a son. What could go wrong there? Jezebel and Ahab, two wicked people that serve gods, they have a son, and that son becomes king. He never had a chance, did he? Wasn't very long before he takes a fall. And in that fall, he's injured and he's in bed. And he sends to one of the, he says, you messenger, go ask of Baal or one of the pagan gods, will I survive this fall? Well, God knew of his request. Instead of coming and seeking after him, guess what he did? He went after these pagan gods. God sent Elijah to him to tell him, you ain't going to make it. You're going to die. And, and that's, that's kind of the sentence here upon people that will follow uh, this type of teaching. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to you each one according to your works. He says, Now unto you I say to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine and have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. So they were dealing with a lot. They had an issue they needed to handle. And God said, those of you that are being faithful, I'm not going to throw anything else on you. Uh, but hold fast because it's, it's, it's a challenge to stay away from, from that temptation that they were dealing with. And he that overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with an iron rod. They shall be dashed into pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have perceived or have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, which is a reference to Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Think about if you were a soldier in a war. And it just didn't look very good. But you're fighting on this, this team this, this, for this army, but all around you, you see the enemy. Wouldn't it be encouraging to get word that your side's going to win? Wouldn't that help you get through that fight? Well, so Jesus gives them that, that encouragement here at the end of this and says that, yeah, we're going to win. There's a battle to win. If you'll hold fast, if you'll stand, stand uh, fast, then I'll give you power over nations. You know, it says that Jesus said that no greater man has lived that on the earth uh, than John the Baptist, but least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We have great power in the kingdom. We may be small, few in number and getting fewer if you look at those pew surveys, but nonetheless, God grants us power uh, that, that is unimaginable. So, this, the book in Thyatira, so my charge to you this morning is or my question, I guess, is have you been eating meat offered to idols? Serving gods that... In other words, you wake up in the morning and you look at the throne of your heart and you realize that God's not sitting there anymore. It's, uh, 
it's a new piano or it's a it's a it's something there's only room for one you know uh, a lot of you are probably following the NCAA tournament uh, there's a men's tournament there's a women's tournament on the men's side they started out with 68 teams 68 teams tomorrow night there will be one winner there'll be 67 really good teams that didn't win and one one that wins I say that to point out that ultimately that we have to choose who's on our who's on the throne of our hearts there's only room for one it's it's not a love seat it's not a sofa it's not it's not a it's not a recline it's it's not a a sectional where you have multiple seats it's there's one seat Jesus Christ came and died we this weekend we celebrate Easter Jesus on Jesus died he was buried and he rose the third day we celebrate that today he did that to sit on the throne of your heart he's earned that and he'll not accept any other place so let's draw from let's draw away from anything that's that's removing him from the throne of our hearts let's live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord and the way that he'll be proud of this congregation uh, this morning if we're gonna offer a song of invitation if we can assist you in any way, we would invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the selected song.